0: You movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 330 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Adalbert Merckx episode of the SLS Cast, because it turns out that uh, there's a guy out there named Adalbert Merckx who has a distant relative maybe not even distant but definitely has a relative named Max Wolf who back in 1910 discovered a minor planet called 330 Aldeberta because he decided to name it after his family member and that is some weird, long-way-down, minor-planet knowledge that Matt has for you. And as I just noted, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee! Tim! So,
1: is this the planet where the aliens from Ray
0: Harryhausen's Earth versus the flying saucers come from? It is entirely possible. I really wish I had paid attention... Closer. Did they? Did they actually say the name of the planet that they came from? I'm trying to remember because I don't recall.
1: I rewatched all these today. One of the creatures is from Venus. I have a feeling it's yes. the creature yeah, the, from the that, 20 million the miles. Yes, yes. To yes. Earth. That is the
0: one from 20 million miles from Earth. Is the emir or what? Ymir because they took that name out. Well, the, we'll have to talk about it more later. But they but they changed the name in the movie. But, yes, its technical name was Ymir, Y-M-I-R. Oh.
1: Tune in next week, folks, for that early tease.
0: That's right, next week, yes. Because we are actually doing a four-part series. Now, we, we, we're we doing some stuff getting us ready for the summer and maybe getting ready for somebody to be a teacher and maybe getting ready for someone to get married. And this might be some stuff that's coming at you that was recorded, say, before you're now listening to it. And very specific. Not too much, <laughs> not, not too much, you know, behind the scenes movie magic being given away, as it were. But, uh, this is going to be a four part ep- uh, series. And I think we decided because we're really going to be going into the movies themselves and kind of reviewing them based on the movies, not just the special effects that it's more, a special series of reviews and not really a uh, discussions with Matt and Tim. So it's a four-part series on Ray Harryhausen, and we're going to be covering two movies each week in this four-part series, and we will be giving them the official SLS cast treatment with the ratings and all that good stuff. But we'll also be talking a little bit about Ray Harryhausen's life and maybe some of the special production stuff that was on for him behind the scenes. And um yeah, so I'm kind of excited. Is there is there anything you want to say about this special project we've taken on? I'm excited. I
1: wrote down a lot of stuff here in my Handy Dandy SLS Cast official yellow notebook. I haven't seen these movies in years. Since I was a kid, therefore, the versions I grew up watching are not the versions that I now have, that Matt, you and I both have on Blu-ray. Uh, last year, I got Matt the same Blu-ray box set that I have. It's four Ray Harryhausen movies, and that's what kind of spawned this here segment, and they're beautiful. Not only did these films receive the high-definition treatment, but you get to watch them in their original widescreen format, it's like you're watching a totally different movie. At least that's how it was for me, because again, I grew up watching this on TV on a boxed TV, and I haven't seen it since. It's been fantastic, so I I, I hope I hope us we as in you and I, Matthew, talking about this will inspire others out there to go and pick themselves up copies of these movies. Because I I think uh, you're going to find
0: much appreciation for them, as much as we have. And again, before you think to yourself, well, maybe, I mean, I appreciate things for what they might have done for us, but I'm not quite into older movies, and maybe I'm not quite into sci-fi movies from the 50s and what have you and you know i am willing to give you that legitimate criticism that maybe you're just not as into these kinds of stuff but i would say that if it was good enough for the likes of steven spielberg peter jackson joe dante tim uh tim burton james cameron guillermo del toro george lucas john lasseter john landis j.j abrams wes anderson then maybe just maybe can be good enough for you too
1: oh and you didn't even mention the special effects pioneers that came to light in the 60s and 70s with like rick baker
0: oh no I, i i wanted to get into that stuff uh when we you know talk a little bit more about him but i mean the literal people who claim influence and i would and i would buy that they are not just paying lip service i i listed there these are people, um, as a matter of fact, uh, we, you know, I did some digging around and what have you. And, uh, the BFI actually lists uh, like Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson and Guillermo del Toro among the actual people who are true in, uh, inspired buys from Ray Harryhausen. And I think that is absolutely amazing. I think it's also interesting to note that. And this is probably something we'll touch on as we get through all of the movies that we're going to be doing over the next uh, four episodes. Ray Harryhausen, you'll note was a big influence on these directors. And it was really just by chance and the way studio rules worked and union rules worked that he was never listed as a director. Uh, because, He had it worked into his contracts that it didn't matter what the movie was, who wrote it, who was directing, who was producing. He was there. If you're hiring him on, then he's there to look at the script and make notes. He's there to work direction and cinematography into the script because all of these things will be taking into account... How, where, why, and what is going on in terms of the special effects. And at its core, that made him a director of a film. And there were some directors who didn't like that, but there were some other directors who specifically were like, Oh my God, yes, this is perfect. Because then they would work their special effects around, they would work their special effects and their scenes in the scripts around what they would want Harryhausen to do. And I think it's important that while we definitely pay homage to Ray Harryhausen and the people like Rick Baker who came in and set up the special effects we know and love, and of course Willis O'Brien, who was the direct influencer of Ray Harryhausen, I think it is really cool that we can talk about these directors as well, because in his own right, Ray Harryhausen was a director too. Yeah. I'll step down off my soapbox now.
1: And we should probably put it out on the table now that we are not going to be directly reviewing probably his most famous film, Ray Harryhausen's most famous film, Clash of the Titans. So hopefully nobody out there is too upset about that. I mean, I'd imagine most of us have seen Clash of the Titans by now. And I'm talking about the original clash of the titans from 1981 but uh instead of clash of the titans i figured jason the argonauts and his three sinbad movies would be a nice send off send off i guess
0: yeah well for me and, and it is kind of interesting that we'll be able to do this at the tail end to do all the the sinbads because uh we're kind of trying to do chronological order for him but seventh voyage of sinbad it was in 1958 um, and that's obviously, we're not going to be covering that until the fourth episode. And that's just so we can do our, you know, all the Sinbad movies, which that's why we're doing it that way. Excellent call by Tim. Um But arguably, from the research I have done, everybody can have all the love they want for Clash of the Titans. But most people would say that Jason and the Argonauts is like the definitive Ray Harryhausen movie sure like that's the movie you go to if you're a true ray harryhausen fan that's like his best so i'm okay with not doing clash of the titans i mean granted it was pretty close to his last movie wasn't it wasn't like the last regular movie that he did i know he came back for like one thing in like 2005 or something but
1: he did stuff up through the... N- I'm pretty sure he did stuff up through the 90s. Oh, well, you're probably talking about, like, his, like, full movie he worked on. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm was not a, yeah. entirely
0: sure, to be honest. Huh. Well, that's fine. We'll have time to get there. We, <laughs> you know, we, we we got four episodes to get that done. We, questions burning, questions answered in future episodes. All right. Well, then, I guess without further ado, should we go ahead and jump right into it? Let's do it. Here we go, folks. It's the movie. We have. <laughs> And this week's Harryhausen Oh is there a good word for movies that we can use that has an H word?
1: Harry let's see, Harryhausen
0: Harryhausen
1: hysterectomy, we can't use that. (laughs) Harryhausen
0: Ha Harryhausen I don't know. I guess we'll just go with retrospective. That's fine. Our first two films in the (laughs) Ray Harehausen retrospective are going to be Mighty Joe Young from 1949, and It Came From Beneath the Sea from 1955. And I imagine we are just going to tackle these in chronological order, right, Tim? I think that would make sense. I think so, too. All right, so uh our sinbad episode notwithstanding we are just going to do these you know obviously in chronological order as we go through these movies um and we also made sure to kind of pull some notes from uh from from the different films and from his life and whatnot so that we can kind of have a little bit of discussion but i think before we get into anything maybe you would like to do some trailer action and that's what we'll do right now of movie you're waiting to see, as John Ford and Miriam C. Cooper present Mighty Joe Young, whose sensational exploits will startle you, thrill you, electrify you with hair-raising excitement and suspense. See Mighty Joe Young as he savagely resists capture in his native Africa. Oh, Joe, Joe! See the most fantastic relationship between beast and beauty, a mere girl mastering a primitive giant. See Mighty Joe Young enraged by Hollywood pranksters. Destroy Filmland's swankiest nightclub on a fabulous sunset strip. Mighty Joe Young. The picture that's alive with the most sensational action thrills ever filmed. Mightier than King Kong. Mighty Joe Young. All right. So now you've heard it. The wonderful story that will be Mighty Joe Young. Who... Grows from 12 feet to like 27 feet, depending on the shot at the end of the film. <laughs> um, but yeah, what, 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 what do we want to talk about about this one there, Tim? What are your thoughts? Before we get into the movie itself, I know we wanted to kind of do some production stuff. This, this, of course, is the, um, this is the one that kind of let Harryhausen kind of cut his teeth.
1: Yes, and this is the film that does not star Bill Paxton. For all of you wondering why we're talking about Disney's Mighty Joe Young from 1998, we are not. Uh, But yeah, this was his first big Wait, did I say that? Oh no no! I I was being funny, attempting. Oh okay, I was like I could have sworn it said 1949. Yeah, <laughs> you didn't realize you're talking about Bill Paxton and Charlie Theron and the, the whole time. No, so yeah, oh, uh, oh. but Mighty Joe Young from 1947 is his first film, big budget studio film, but he is uncredited, and he was by this time all in on this whole stop motion animation thing. After seeing King Kong, which first introduced Ray Harryhausen to stop-motion animation, he just fell in love with it. He took it up as a hobby and made short films in his garage. Uh, He went on to take some film classes, I believe, at USC, University of Southern California. And he also studied photography because stop-motion animation relies heavily on still photography. And for those of you who do not know what stop motion animation is, you basically have your model, your creature, your character, whatever it may be. Their joints are movable. And you have a camera fixed on your model. And it takes these one-frame snapshots. And after every snapshot, or after each frame is taken, they move the arm or they move the hand or they make the leg move up just a little bit more in the motion of taking a step. And this takes months and months and months (laughs) for somebody to do, especially somebody like Ray Harryhausen, because he is generally the only person working on these films at a time.
0: By design, he was adamant that he did the work himself as much as possible.
1: Yeah, so he went to USC, studied film, he studied photography, because again, stop motion animation relies on photography. Much of his early work were little dinosaur films. The first film he attempted to make was called Evolution, and it was about dinosaurs at the beginning of Earth's life. But the project was dropped due to the release of Fantasia, Disney's Fantasia, which happened to feature a similar storyline. And according to Ray Harryhausen, he felt that Disney's Fantasia, their storyline, was a better made film. So Willis O'Brien, who created the King Kong stop motion effects, was the stop motion animation supervisor for Mighty Joe Young. And O'Brien hired Harryhausen as an accredited assistant or a technician, as what they called those guys back then, based on the short stop-motion dinosaur footage that Ray Harryhausen created for that evolution film. O'Brien had to deal with other problems pertaining to Mighty Joe Young So he delegated most of the stop-motion work to Ray Harryhausen. And Ray Harryhausen had said, in the past, that he did do about 90% of all of the animation work. The special effects budget for Mighty Joe Young was only around $5,000, not a whole lot of money at all. Uh, and despite very good reviews, commending the sympathy <laughs> that the movie garners for the big giant monkey, and despite it winning an Oscar for Best Special Effects, it was a uh, box office disappointment. It pretty much bombed. Regardless, audiences got their first dose of Harry Harryhausen's artistry and his talent at giving character and nuance to a stop-motion creature. You know, he'd spend a lot of time focusing on these little aspects that many other animators wouldn't even dare to focus so much time on. And audiences took these little moments for granted. Personally, one of my favorite golden nuggets of Ray Harryhausen's imposed character nuance is Mighty Joe Young's walk, or his actions going into a walk. For example, whenever Mighty Joe Young or Joe Young begins to walk, he just looks down to make sure he's not about to step on anybody or anything. So he makes for a very sympathetic character because he doesn't want to hurt anybody. He's the gentle giant, I suppose. The Andre the Giant of his time.
0: Well, something that uh, I think is really interesting is that, like you mentioned, um... He did take classes on it and everything. He actually uh, was a friend of Ray Bradbury uh, as well, and they joined a, a science fiction league back in 1939. And so that would actually come into play later on in some of the movies we're going, and uh, at least one of the movies we're going to be covering. And it was during this time period that a friend of his actually arranged for him to meet. Willis O'Brien and that was the very first meeting that they had and it was one of those things where um, O'Brien really respected Harryhausen enough to be like look you know you've got talent but you need to take sculpting classes you need to take some more artistry classes so that you can really grow your talent and make it into something worthwhile and that meeting is ultimately what led to him being picked up. To be on Mighty Joe Young, so I thought that was kind of cool as well.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting, and and also while kind of going more into research mode for this film, I also learned a little bit of uh I I also learned a little bit of Oscar's history that. I didn't really know much about. I mean, I've heard of this particular thing happening in other categories, but I didn't realize that it was kind of honed in uh, specifically for special effects because, you know, King Kong, by the time that film came out, there was not a best special effects Oscar. Well, by the time Mighty Joe Young came out, there was, but the Oscar went to the producer, The Oscar wasn't delegated to the actual, the supervisor or the technician or the artists. It went to the producer. But the producer appreciated their work so much that he gave Willis, he presented the Oscar to Willis. I thought that was kind of interesting. And as I mentioned before, most of these I have seen before, but many years ago in my childhood. And... I loved this film as a kid. I think I even preferred Mighty Joe Young to King Kong. There is just something about the giant ape in this film that I was just more attached to than King Kong. I, I don't know. Like, what, what What do you think about that?
0: Well, I, I okay, so I guess then that would mean we kind of need to really talk about the movie itself at this point, and... Uh, uh, I think what the movie does is it builds on the already existing tropes. I, I think a lot of people don't realize that one of the reasons that Mighty Joe Young potentially failed is because uh, we didn't have VCRs back in the 30s, right? We had no way to watch a movie other than going to the movie theater, which means that in the 16 years between... Uh, king kong and mighty joe young king kong had been re-released four times so and the last time that it had been released was in 1946 and i think that it wasn't enough even though there was scale difference there was uh there was an animation difference you know it was more expressive i think it was just too similar a story to king kong and i think that's what ultimately was keeping the audiences away there they didn't have enough to really appreciate the differences and the nuances in there because it's building on all the tropes it's kind of like a it's almost like an allegorical retelling of King Kong with comedy aspects to it. And, and I, and I think that is what, uh, people really, I think that's really the saddest part of this movie because you have such a good, Aspect. I mean, it, it, really, in, in, instead of King Kong being this misunderstood brute who's just transferred from Skull Island or wherever, the Lost Island or whatever, and has to be made to force to come out there and, and kind of gets the damsel and what have you. And is this just tragic character. Well, now we have Mighty Joe Young, who is a very likable character. Who already has an existing relationship that makes sense with said damsel and then just has kind of some bad luck, which causes you to easily empathize with his situation when he's threatened to be put down. So I, I, I mean, it does a lot of things right. I just think that it, it, it was either too close in release time to. Uh, to to King Kong or, and or... I don't necessarily say it was too sophisticated, but I don't think it was appreciated. I think that's probably why it didn't do as well. I'd
1: be surprised if people didn't at least appreciate it. I mean, back then. Right, right, yeah. But I don't know, man. There's just something about the visual artistry to the film that I I loved. The whole stage show, those scenes, where... The audience within the movie is first introduced to mighty joe young and how they go about introducing him as he's as you first you see the woman playing uh that song on the piano that i forget the name of the song beautiful something yada 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 and she slowly is being lifted up but you're not too sure by what uh and then it's revealed that it's Mighty Joe Young, the giant ape underneath her, kind of holding up the platform uh, that she and the piano is on. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't know, it's it's beautiful. There's just some great visual poetry in this film that that I don't haven't seen in any of the other or many of the other Ray Harryhausen movies, and it's probably because this wasn't a hundred percent a Ray Harryhausen film. Uh, there was other input involved, and there was other development ideas already in play by the time he came on but man it's just it's it's a beautiful film especially when you move into the final act the finale with the fire and joe has to go and save people and oh no he's gonna make it out of the burning building and the entire film's in black and white until you get to the fire scene and then they put this red filter on, i suppose so when you're looking at it you're looking at red and that's supposed to be symbolic of the flames and peril and death and danger and possible tragedy and all that jazz so yeah i mean there's just a lot of like visual nuance that's just absolutely fantastic
0: then based on all of these findings for you where, where are you rating this film because obviously we have to take into account age we have to take into account you know a lot of different factors um But where are you landing on this movie?
1: Well, it is a ripoff of King Kong, although it was produced and made by kind of the same creative team behind King Kong. I'm giving it a five. I think it's a classic. You can still enjoy it. You can still feel for the giant ape. So there's a lot going for it. And I think it looks great now. Still. Still.
0: Well, I am coming in at a four, mainly because I feel like while he did, it's clear he's done the bulk of the work here. I think that a lot, that, that, it's pretty clear that this is one of the fewer episodes, this is one of the fewer times when he did not have the control that he needed. And so I think it shows in the final product and, um, there, there's some scale issues and stuff like that, which also happened in King Kong and everything. But, um, and, and even Harryhausen himself admits that those scale is, issues exist, but it was more that the director, um, or, I'm sorry, one of the producers was wanting additional, you know, uh, dramatic effect. Oh, no, it's gotta be bigger. Man. You know, so it was that kind of stuff, but I still think it's a, it's a fun movie, and I think that there's a lot of nuance to it that people might, Uh, be well served to appreciate so I give it a four out of five on that for sure and then I guess we can move right into 1955's it came from beneath the sea a tidal wave of terror engulfs the screen as a raging monster from the dawn of creation attacks the world of man Here, gentlemen, is your villa. We take an enormous number of those to disable a Navy submarine. Or just one of enormous size, Mr. Chase. I see they picked an atom sub to go out and fight
1: this thing. Why is that, Commander? Could be because of the new electronic equipment or her
0: speed. Was she ordered back here from Hawaii just for that? That's right. I think it's as bad as that, do you? I think we're lucky she's here. The H-bomb blasted it loose from the depths of the Pacific. But not even the H-bomb can kill it. Unknown
1: object coming this way. Entering minefield. Stand by, number 38, mine. Fire. Go up, Ready, number 12, south. Fire. Coming on through.
0: That's the end of our first line of defense, Miss Joyce.
1: Then the red alert.
0: West Coast reels under holocaust as the men and weapons of the atomic age. Battle to the death against the ageless monster of the deep. You heard it there. The trailer for It Came From Beneath the Sea. Of course, the 1955 black and white science fiction here. We've gone from King Kong-esque now to science fiction. Anything you want to say about this one here? The uh, The only thing that I thought was kind of interesting was we're seeing, now that we're officially getting into science fiction, it is interesting to see The militaristic aspect of what, of what existed for science fiction in the fifties, especially when we think about how, um, the atomic age was upon us in full force and it led to lots of footage being pulled. Um, I mean, actually the filming itself, a lot of the filming was done at the naval shipyard in San Francisco. And they even had real naval personnel in supporting roles. And so you see that a lot going forward in the science fiction realm of these movies I thought was really kind of cool. And the uh Sixtopus (laughs) S I X, the Sixtapus, is uh definitely really, really well done. I think that um probably one of the better as one of the better things that I'd ever seen uh, coming from this area is the bridge where they i mean it 's just the cleverness that they put all this stuff together and I mean you when you think about limited budgets of the day when you think about the limited technology that they had but I mean Harryhausen came up with just awesome awesome ways of giving you a way to truly put a practical, physical prop in front of the bridge that people and the, you know, air quotes here, octopus can interact with. And yet at the same time, it's 1955's special effects. I think it's just really cool to see, really cool to see on that.
1: Yeah, and I think it's also worth noting that three years before or two years before it came from, Beneath the Sea. His first credited film was 1953's The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms about the dinosaur awoken by a blast, and it terrorizes New York City.
0: He oh, I cre- think you, uh, I think you may have misunderstood or misconstrued that. That was the uh, 1999 Godzilla movie with Matthew Broderick. Right. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> Thank you for getting that joke. Uh, there you go.
1: Well, not only was Ray Harryhausen a master at, you know, stop-motion animation, but he was also a pioneer, and he came up with something that he would later go on to call dynamation. And he did this for his film, or utilized this, in 1953's The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Uh, He created the technique dynamation as a result of how expensive it had become to construct miniature sets for the miniature models. What I mean is that, like, say, for Mighty Joe Young, you have Mighty Joe Young on the stage within the movie, or he's in in a house, or he's in the forest. Well, you have to create these sets that are small and match the model to keep the scale and all that stuff. So, with 20,000 Fathoms... It was a fairly low-budget film, and they couldn't afford to build all these sets. Well, instead of cutting all the special effects, or shortening the special effects down to maybe two minutes of screen time, he created Dynamation. It's a very complicated technique to just sum up, but if you want to read more about it, I do recommend you going over to... Unmuseum.org and it explains dynamation in great detail. They have diagrams and all that stuff, but basically it utilizes uh, rear screen projection where they go and they shoot the bit of film uh, that would take the place of the miniature models. They would use other film they would have to go through, and they would use superimposing glass techniques. They would have to go in and use paint, and paint over little markers, touches, where it would become obvious that they were using some kind of visual trickery, some movie magic. So it was a cheaper process, but it was still, at first, a painstakingly time-consuming process process and as the years went on and as the ray harryhausen films came he was able to go about this dynamation technique with more ease but in terms of it came from beneath the sea it was the film that columbia pictures released in 1955 ray harryhausen was asked if he wanted to meet producer charles h schneer he was a columbia producer who had a movie idea about a giant octopus that would take down the Golden Gate Bridge. And Ray Harryhausen thought that the film would be a nice challenge, so he helped Schneer develop the film. And like with many of his other films, Ray Harryhausen was involved with the project at development level. So at ground level, he had his foot in the creation process of the film. He produced drawings and storyboards which the screenwriter would then take and incorporate Harryhausen's ideas into their script. It Came From Beneath the Sea was the first of many films Harryhausen would develop with Charles H. Schneer and Columbia Pictures. And at that time, there were no other films like theirs being made. So they were unique films. People flocked to go see them because no other films could capture... Somebody's imagination like these Ray Harryhausen and Charles Schneer pictures as what we mentioned before this kind of solidified Harryhausen's loneliness when it came to his work and how he liked to operate while making these films instead of taking a office or a workshop on the lot where Columbia Pictures is there in Culver City. He preferred to do his work in a little tiny shop, a little tiny store right off Washington Boulevard, still in Culver City, just actually right across the street from where Columbia Studios was set up at, and currently is still set up at. And he did his work there. And it took him eight to nine months to fully put it came from beneath the sea together. He created the models for the film, he performed the stop-motion work, he had to make all of the reared projection plates for the film, and he took on many other duties as well. And when other studios began making more stop-motion films 10-15 years later, they'd really have to employ like 15 different people to do everything that Harryhausen did alone which is pretty crazy. Uh, I mean, this guy was a workaholic for sure.
0: Indeed. I will, however, add that I reread this process like six times so that I could get the stupid dynamation thing because I didn't understand it either. But it's actually not as difficult. I I figured out a way to dumb it down for my brain, and I think I can can explain it. There's a miniature rear projection screen. And what they do is, while they have the rear projection screen going, they are stop-motion animating everything, okay? And they're very carefully timing the pictures as they run the stop-motion animation because they need it to time with what's going on in the background. When they get done with that process, they rewind it just enough so that everything is back to where it should be reset And then they black it all out so that they can see what's going on, and then they film the foreground and then they blend the foreground and the background together. And then you have a real live filmed foreground, a real live filmed background, and the uh, stop motion animation happening in between so that you have a an actual set, if you will, that they were working from for realism.
1: Well, that is definitely much more condensed than the six paragraph
0: <laughs> explanation <laughs> that I found on that on museum website i absolutely had to reread it like six times no kidding i'm like wait a minute what are they doing <laughs> oh so, yeah at any rate okay well then uh now this one of course uh again it came from beneath the sea it's it's definitely space age sci-fi atomic horror if you will and we've got the sea monster who comes up and is awakened yada yada, yada. so um the trailer's pretty self-explanatory on this one what do you what What did you think on this one there, sir? It's an entertaining film.
1: It's a fun little flick, a little bit dated, but the effects, especially during the finale, you know, the last ten minutes or so right. are are amazing. I mean, you could tell it was a low budget movie because you would see like the rear projection of a tentacle going up for no <laughs> reason whatsoever. It's kind of like like snidely whiplash in the background, rubbing his whiskers, just waiting to attack. You know, that's kind of like what this giant octopus was doing for most of this movie. And then it goes all batshit crazy and terrorizes all
0: of San Francisco (laughs) in 10 minutes. Absolutely. Yeah, I am my rating on this one is definitely higher than Mighty Joe Young. Not really because the movie is better in terms of um, production or story per se, because I would say it's... Arguably the same, if not worse, uh just because of budget and timing. But, man, you, this is where you can really see the special effects and Ray Harryhausen shine. And so I I landed on 4.5 for this one. And, again, guys, a lot of this is going to be, guys and gals, it's more on the special effects. This is more on the Ray Harryhausen and all the cool impact stuff. Uh The movie, in and of itself, can also be better or worse, but I'm landing on 4.5 because these special effects are on point. I really like the opening crawl
1: with the credits rising from the crashing waves at the beginning of the movie. Very interesting. This is the one that I first started watching in color because the Blu-ray collection that you and I have, Matt, not only is it restored in its black and white high-definition widescreen glory, but they also colorized it. And... Though being able to see Harryhausen's effects in color, you know, it's pretty cool. It just becomes more distracting than anything else. So I kind of switched back to the... Well, I didn't kind of. I definitely switched back to the black and white version only after like 10 minutes or so. But the opening title crawl with the credits rising from the crashing waves is super cool, especially in, in color. It's just kind of a neat effect to get you into the atmosphere of the movie. But also just... A PSA about watching colorized movies that are colorized for the sake of being colorized for those of you who just don't like black and white movies. The flick's use of the fake backgrounds and rear projection isn't as obvious in black and white. The effects look much more dated, making them more prone to be laughed at rather than enjoyed. So, watching movies colorized, again, when they should not be colorized, should only be done to fully appreciate why you should watch the black and white version, and that's pretty much it. But Harryhausen not only had a do-stop motion for the giant octopus, he also had a do-stop motion for all the destruction caused by... The giant octopus. For example, when the giant octopus sends one of his massive tentacles crashing through a small tunnel, Harry Harryhausen had to animate all the concrete chunks and falling debris, you know, that was caused by the mass destruction of the of the tentacle. And another example is when one of those tentacles wraps around a clock tower, crushing it while pulling the entire tower down all of that debris had to be animated by Harryhausen as well due to the budget restraints again just keep in mind if you're watching this film for the first time all the great action and there is great action and great effects it takes place during the final act and this is mainly due to budget constraints but it does not ruin the effect of the film at all there's great tension because you know something is going to happen and it's wonderful destructive glory for sure A lot of the action is also left up to the audience's imagination, like when the octopus goes to knock out a helicopter out of the sky. The shot cuts to black right before contact is made with the helicopter and then cuts to another shot of the action. So there's a lot of camera trickery that's definitely utilized here. Granted, it's for budgetary reasons, but it's highly effective in editing and building tension because you just don't know exactly what's happening. He does stuff like that a lot in his other films that, which we'll which we'll talk about. But I give this film a 4 out of 5. It's a very good film. However, it does have its downfalls. I f- personally feel like it didn't age as gracefully as some of his other flicks.
0: But uh hey, got to watch it. Very cool. All right. Well, then that brings us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies are going to be Earth versus the Flying Saucers from 1956 and 20 Million Miles to Earth from 1957. And that will be part two of our four-part series on Ray. Harryhausen, and I believe without further ado, it is now time for the spiel. Is it not, sir?
1: Spiel on.
0: Oh, Stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him.
1: All right. Would you tell him to just relax, and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine.
0: Just hang loose, blood. She's are gonna
1: catch up on the rebound on the med side.
0: What it is, big mama? My mama, mama raised no dummies. I duck her rap. Copy me some slack, Jack. It's a Jack cutting he hell 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 say cut me some slack, We Say to one help. Chop, don't get the say help. Say can't huh? hang. Say seven up.
1: Jive ass dude don't got no brains in it.
0: Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at revermission.com and facebook.com both/slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we're of course the SLS Cast. You can find us at slscast.com. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. Cast. You can follow me. This is Matt on Twitter at nettwit 12345 You can of course come aboard the Information Superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and/or favorite us on Stitcher Radio as well as track us down the old SoundCloud and other podcast directories. If you'd like to support the show, we'd love to have you do that by heading on over to Patreon.com and checking it out there. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Ray Harryhausen, I get to say this. I was never restricted. I was never told what to do. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next
1: week. Madam? Perhaps we should be going. Oh, there we are, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur.